Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. Today, Dan Timms describes his journey with injury and recovery and how it helped to shape his thoughts about sustainability. He discusses training methods, the forces involved in parkour, and his approach to coaching. Dan unpacks Parkour UK, what it is, what it does, and his involvement with it, before sharing his insight on designing parkour parks. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you that this project is entirely listener-supported. Please take a minute to visit moversmindset.com support to read about becoming a voluntary supporter with a one-time or recurring contribution. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Hi, I'm Dan Timms. Daniel Timms is an engineer, parkour coach, coach educator, athlete, and director of Jump Parkour. He has served on the Parkour UK board and was one of the first Parkour UK Level 2 certified coaches. Dan designed and helped construct a parkour-specific park in his hometown of Leicester, as well as other sites around the UK. Welcome, Dan. Uh, Thanks for having me. Dan, we spent a bunch of time talking before we began recording, and we were talking about training methodology, and like we wandered off into um, like barefoot kinesiology. And I've seen mm-hmm. you do a bunch of videos where you were training like various, uh, like almost like Turkish get-ups out of a turned out foot position. And I'm just thinking, let's start by talking about uh, maybe sustainability. So you've been, uh, I don't know if I should say training or if you've been watching parkour, how you want to put it, you've mm-hmm. been in the scene for 15 plus years now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if, how has your perspective on sustainability changed? So I'm betting in the beginning, it was just, you know, bash and crash and throw yourself at it. And then I understand you had some, like some shoulder injuries. And I'm just wondering, like, can you give me a bit of a framework for how your perspective on sustainability has changed and maybe what you're focusing on now in the vein of sustainability? Yeah, so I think I can offer quite a unique perspective on sustainability in parkour. And that's because I've also had one of probably the worst falls and accidents in the parkour community. Um, And it was just after my first year of training. Uh, Before I get to that, though, I think I'd probably want to mention that before parkour, I was heavily into rollerblading, specifically mm-hmm. the aggressive style of rollerblading, where you do spins and tricks and grinds on ledges and um, just things that look cool, essentially. And a big part of that is inside the boot uh, of the skate, you, you're you on the side of your foot and you're bearing weight in what is quite an unnatural position. And like you mentioned, these ankles and feet folded over onto the side. So I put a lot of strength in that position Um, but being young and not really having any reference points to go to, I didn't realize that, uh, that was something abnormal to have like that strength and that mobility in the ankles. And it was only many years later when I think I saw a post from, I think it was Ryan Ford actually, Mm -hmm. um, started talking about this, you know, strength in unnatural or weakened positions to make your body more robust and increase your longevity that I was like, well, hang on a minute. I've, can I do that? Right. Yeah, like, I, I, I've, I I've, that. Like, I've been doing this for years, <laughs> like when, but I didn't realize it was a thing. Um, so I think that got me thinking about longevity and practice and just increasing your like strength as a practitioner. Um, so going back to what I mentioned about that accident, mm-hmm. uh, it was 2006, summertime. I was visiting Leeds uh, towards the north of England and there's a there's like a castle in a park there and it has two two turrets on its front facade 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you the I'll give you the abridged <laughs> version, but essentially, uh, it's it's a cool structure in a cool location, and I thought, well, you know, the view from the top is going to be really nice, and it happens to be on a hill, so the back wall um, is a lot lower than the front, mm. so it was like a, a wall run and a climb to get to uh, the top of the back wall, and I vaulted up some walls and vaulted into one of the turrets. Now I'd done a recce of the site uh, previously and looked in the bottom of one of the turrets and it had like this kind of mesh at the top mm-hmm. that you could stand on. Um, but in my keenness and my excitement, I vaulted into the other turret because it had a symmetrical front and yeah, you, you see where this is going already. Uh, this one, this one didn't have uh, a mesh of floor at the top. So, you know, I've just speed vaulted over this wall into this turret and I look down and, you know, there's nothing beneath me for about 40 feet. Uh, so I'm like, hmm. Um, going down going down how do i not die (laughs) let's you know let's tick that one off first and actually although it was kind of parkour that took me there it's also the parkour training that i had that probably saved my life and i stayed very calm and i didn't just panic and start flailing so i was falling down and on the way down i had a bit of momentum that got me to the opposite wall um and i was like okay well i have to push off of this while i'm still falling and it was obviously like rough stones it scraped up and kind of scarred my forearm Mm -hmm. And I pushed off, still falling, and then I reached the the other wall behind me because mm-hmm. I pushed too hard, and I had to push back off of that to get into the middle. And then, you know, I'm still falling and falling so fast, the walls are starting to blur, which is a bit weird. Um, and I'm starting to tip backwards over my head. So I try and throw my shoulders forward, like kind of how you initiate a front somersault. Mm-hmm. And then I, I land right leg, left leg, roll onto my back. Uh, my hair, like, hits the wall behind yeah, me. Just enough space. Just enough, like, I think an inch or two further back, and I wouldn't be sat here right now. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty, pretty horrific. I, I look down at my right leg. Uh, my thigh is half as long and twice as wide as it That's should be. It's broken. And I'm like, <laughs> it's the one time as well that, uh, so the lesson to everybody listening here, always take a phone with you when you go training, please. I didn't have mine. Um, Literally on you. It should be in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it gets broken in the training, I mean, a small price to pay for, you know, actually being able to contact the emergency services. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I look out of the doorway of this turret. Uh, and you can see through the castle into the other one. And since I'd done my recce and then climbed up, there was a, a group of local youths, if you like, that had uh, sat down in the bottom of the other turret and were smoking some weed. Um, <laughs> so they were they were stoned and not really not really fully with it. And all they saw looking across was some guy fall out of nowhere <laughs> and <laughs> just hit the floor. And one guy just looks, you know, tilts his head. He's like, Whoa. and then like kind of comes across to me. He's like, you were right there, mate. And I'm, I'm just like, no. um can I borrow your phone, please? Think I need an ambulance. You know, he takes it. I was like, yeah, sure. Here you go. So get carted off in an ambulance. The next day, have an operation, get a metal rod inserted into my femur. Uh, I've still got that to this day. Um, seven months later, you know, start training parkour again. That's the first question I asked the paramedics when they arrived, actually. I uh, didn't care about anything else, apparently. I was <laughs> Can just they like, fix this? Yeah, I was like, this... will, will I do parkour again? You know, only having done it a year. <laughs> and they're like, dude, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, I think they were pretty good about it. They're like, Probably. But they were like, you should be dead from that fall, really. I was like, "Mm, okay, seeing as I'm not fancy, you know. Yeah, they're concerned about the head injury, the potential for a head injury. Yeah, that's it. And my spine, they were like, how's your spine okay? I'm like, um... I can wiggle my toes. Strap me to the board. Let's go, right? First thing I did when I hit the floor, um, tried to wiggle my toes. I was like, am I paralyzed? Mm. I'm not. That was honestly the biggest relief I think I felt in my life. Mm. Um, So going through that and... You know, I was quite young comparatively. I was 19 at the time. So you heal quite well at that age. 
And I guess it gave me an opportunity to look at how I'd been training up until then and obviously wanting to recover as quickly as possible and get back to my level while I was recovering. It gave me time to think about my practices and maybe change them to speed up the recovery. So this was at the time for those in the parkour community that remember um, where Hell Knight was a thing. Has that been mentioned before? It hasn't been on the podcast before. I have ah. heard of it. I don't know. That. It certainly wasn't around. So um, Hell Knight was a creation of uh, Chris Blaine Rowett, who I think is surely must have been mentioned before. And it was essentially like a series of kind of body weight exercises that you did around a course at a college in Leicester. And, you know, if you were, if you were a big, strong boy or girl, then you could complete it twice. Um, that was obviously the aim. Uh, just a, a bit of flavor. The first exercise was 15 consecutive pull-ups on a tree branch. Mm. Um, and you had to try and do that unbroken before the next thing. So I guess we did that. And that was my probably inspiration at the time. I didn't know much about strength training and I didn't know where to find good sources, I guess. And then after that, I started speaking to other practitioners, you know, visiting London and there were a few people there like uh, Christian and Bobby who were getting into like squatting, Olympic weightlifting, mm-hmm. these kind of things, um, getting very explosive, very strong. And, you know, it just caused me to do some like reading and research and maybe all those thousands of pistols and thousands of lunges that we did <laughs> maybe weren't really, you know, doing us that much good. Mm. Um what we really should have done in those days was take more metrics, you know, more data. And that's something I've learned as I've kind of progressed in my practice is that, you know, maybe I should have been measuring my broad jump and, you know, measuring like my fatigue levels, just how, what, what the efficacy of this training was because uh, for standard lifting, that data is already out there. You just, nobody in the parkour community had really looked at it properly at that time. Like we mentioned before, the problem had already been solved. We just tried to solve it again. The parkour community has tried to solve it again. Um, before we, because I want to go on and talk about uh, Olympic weightlifting and, and mm. that type of um, engineered training or specifically designed training. Mm. Um, before we go on, so can you take me a little bit to, I don't want to say like the darkest hour, but the, the mindset of, um, I know I'm assuming they stuck in at least a whole leg cast down one side, if not weight. Like, so you're in the cast, you're completely mobilized, you're laying in bed and, you know, day 14 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And where were you mentally when you're just like stuck there? And then how did you get, uh, I'm assuming that that was at least a relatively negative experience. How did you get from there? How did you get back to like actually visualizing moving again? Or was it something that you just never lost? side of so that was my my first kind of real injury in parkour and first real injury ever or first real injury first real injury ever, ever. i'd okay. never broken a bone okay until i started parkour so even though statistically brush, pretty safe yeah, first brush with humanity right? yeah first <laughs> yeah. broken bone break the biggest one in your body you know mm. go hard or go home mm. <laughs> maybe not but anyway i, think I recommend going home and not yeah going that, <laughs> i think that would have been a better plan um actually i think for that my mind was like, I'd, I'd never lost touch. I was like, I can't wait to be back. And uh, I, they didn't put me in a cast, uh, which was interesting. They actually put me in traction overnight, you know, like you see in the mm-hmm. cartoons where yeah, they the hang away the from your leg. Um, I didn't think they, that was actually a real thing. So that amused me quite <laughs> a lot when they did it. Um, and actually they, they operated the next day, put the rod in, and then the morning afterwards, they came in with a Zimmer frame. I was like, it's time to walk. I didn't believe them. 
Hmm. You know, these two physios come in. I'm like, they literally put this in yesterday. Like, there's blood still coming out yeah, of the scars. You know, healed, I wake right. up and there's blood all over the sheets. They're like, this is not healed. It's just some stitches. And they're like, yep, they said it can bear weight. Let's go. And I was like, oh, well, and obviously parkour up for the challenge. Right. Let's have some of this. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> just hobbling around. I had thought the idea of having a Zimmer frame was quite funny too. So hobble around Zimmer frame. Okay. You know, maybe get 10 meters there and back. That's it. Done for the day. Trying to straighten the right leg maybe get it from 90 degrees to whoa, 85, right? Yeah. yeah <laughs> a little bit. And it's like maximum effort. And then by the end of a week, walking on crutches up and downstairs, mm. which was, that kind of blew my mind. Actually. I think I assume that's the standard procedure. Maybe somebody who listens can clarify whether they did do it too fast or not. I thought it was pretty fast, but I, I coped with it. Okay. Um, as long as basically, could I get up and downstairs without fainting? almost fainted. That's the closest I've come to fainting in my life. Uh, but I really wanted to go home. Even seven days was, you know, a long time, but yeah, straight back, like wanted to do parkour. Um, there was times when I was crutching it to hell night to do the upper body bits mm. and, you know, then going home, just trying to be involved, still coming out to see people. Uh, I had my degree going on at the time as well. So that kind of kept me involved. Right. But I guess going back to your question in a very circuitous way, <laughs> the, the darkest hour I think was, my second shoulder surgery, which is maybe three-ish years ago. And at this point, you know, I've invested so many years and training hours into my practice. And every time you have an injury that, you know, immobilizes you, that takes... Yeah, a real setback. So if I can yeah. pry, how old were you when you, did, when you hurt this the, for the second injury? <laughs> this is where I come clean and say that's actually my fourth surgery that I've had during my parkour career. <laughs> All right, how about the one that you're talking about? How, the old, one, you? uh, how old was I? That's a great question. I'm going to say <laughs> 28, maybe, okay. give or take. I'm trying to get a gauge for like the type of person and how fast they would recover. So surgery at 28 versus 38 versus 48. Ah, okay, yeah. I mean, medically, you're still young if you're under 60, according to my <laughs> brother and cousin. If you're, if you're yeah, a doctor, they they're say. like, they're young, uh, yeah, under 65. Yeah, young. but um, yeah, so just under 30. And recovering from like a shoulder dislocation and the surgery for that, I actually found much worse than the recovery for the broken femur, much, much worse because they put you in a sling. You're not allowed to move that arm for, depending on the surgeon and the physio team, four to six weeks at all. Um, that also means you can't run you yeah. anything that could jolt it, move it because it's connective tissue and it takes a long time to heal. Um, and just doing that and you know that six weeks every minute of no training at all (laughs) everything you've trained for is basically gonna go um so i've never understood when people say oh you know running is hard um because i kind of kept it up my whole life but then after that time when i could finally go for a run (laughs) i went for a run and i was like Oh, okay. <laughs> this is uh, this is pretty horrific. Now I understand, and I had to go through that process, which is quite nice. Helped me relate to people a bit more in that sense. But I was like, should I pack it in? How many training hours is it going to take me to get back to the discipline? You know, that I've been doing for maybe twelve years or something. And I just thought, well, okay, it's been twelve years. Think about all the people you've impacted and helped in this time. If you stop training, would you still be able to impact on these people? What's going to bring you happiness? 
And the thing that brings me happiness is challenge. And where do I get most of my challenge from? It's from parkour, whether it's training, whether it's coaching, coach educating, whatever. I was like, I can't, I don't think I could leave can't the walk practice. Away. I couldn't, yeah, absolutely. So whilst it's horrible to have what you feel makes you special stripped away, bringing it back is you, so special. You ever see the old TV show in America called The Six Million Dollar Man? It was like this guy gets seriously <laughs> injured and they spent $6 million in the 70s. They spent like $6 million <laughs> on fixing this guy and they made him better. They made him faster. They made him stronger. And and it's like the rebirth of the Phoenix. So it, uh, it sounds to me that for you, it was an opportunity to, all right, let's do this over. And yeah. so you come away from that. Mm. And now in the past three years, can you give me some of your thoughts on how should... I don't want to say how should athletes be training because it, it might just be the way you train is go find somebody who knows how to coach you. But just generally, sure. what would what would good um, progressions and good types of training be for people who want to be good movers? That's the question I like. So essentially, you want to be as good a mover as possible. Think about all the different components you need to build up that picture, that jigsaw. So you want to be strong, sure. You want to be fast. You want to be endurance. You want to be mobile. You've got to be all these things. You've got to be coordinated. Mm -hmm. And then you just kind of take maybe those different categories and then look at what are the people who are maybe best in the world or close to it doing to get to this kind of level. Maybe not take the absolute best in the world because often they are genetic outliers that are built for that one particular thing. But look at maybe couple of levels down from that yeah what's the, what's the collegiate like look if you want to learn about broad jumps look at the collegiate level broad jumpers exactly yeah um because they're the ones that probably the they've taken the training stimulus to get there and the, the right. absolute genetic outliers will be going forward to things like the olympics mm-hmm. either that or they're all on performance enhancing drugs and you can blame that but <laughs> right. i mean the optimist in me wants to believe that's not true um so <laughs> you know the definition of a pessimist mm. an optimist with experience ah, i like that <laughs> so i think have a good strength and conditioning program um there are a lot of knowledgeable people in the parkour community that can help with that but there are more knowledgeable people that aren't part of the parkour community um if you can find a strength and conditioning coach that's worked with athletes um or professional athletes anything like that I think that's really good. I think a good starting point would be someone from the community maybe, and then do your research. And if you've got time to do that, try and get a program that's written specifically for you. Uh, We talked about maybe like what is strong enough for parkour. Maybe we can come back to that later. Right. But definitely have a good program to follow. There is no magic bullet for training. Not really. I know a lot of people that are looking for it. They're like, okay, here's this one amazing method that's going to make me super flexible or super strong or like if i wear these shoes and do this all the time i'm going to get amazing doesn't work like that consistency is the magic bullet and it's the one that no one wants to hear Mm -hmm. because it means that you know while everyone else is doing something fun you're in the gym lifting something heavy right and you just got to keep doing it so to be fair i I really enjoy lifting stuff that's heavy so it's it's not a chore for me Mm. but some people do find it a bit of a chore but you've just got to be consistent all the time your body is great at adapting to stimulus and it's great at becoming not very adapted to stimulus if the stimulus is taken away often with strength the old-fashioned method uh, methods are the best so you want to be squatting deadlifting, bench pressing or dips weighted pull-ups these kind of things they're all very very useful make sure you get a good program though and then i mentioned obviously being strong i also mentioned being mobile and that's really, really important. In there's an, an anecdote that sometimes I tell when I'm 
delivering coaching courses and talking about mobility. And that is, um, you get the fences with kind of the, the spikes on top. Mm-hmm. And I was going over one that was maybe five feet high or something like this. And it was just a step vault going over, but my shoelace got looped over one of the spikes. So <laughs> you can see where this is going. And <laughs> I got, I got fall down to the floor, but my leg stays up there. And so I've got my leg up by my ear with one leg on the ground. And had I not been, you know, training my mobility um, and being able to hit that range of motion safely and with some strength, that would probably have been an injury. In the end, it was okay. I just unhooked my shoelace, you know, brought my leg down and it was fine. But on the way down, it <laughs> it was suddenly like, wait, where's that leg going? <laughs> I think everyone's going to think I'm really accident prone. I really don't miss that often. I've just been training that long. That's, we'll, we'll blame it on that. We're telling um, the fun stories. So things like static stretching can be effective, but it's it's a big time sink. You have to spend a lot of time doing it. And there are other methods that I've personally found to be more effective for myself and people I coach. Uh, generally trying to find ways to build strength in these positions, these disadvantaged positions gives you longer lasting results for a lot less input. So um, the pancake position where you sit with your legs in straddle and fold your chest forward towards the floor. I used to be the guy that was, you know, if I was in a cool down of whatever thing I happened to be doing and someone's like, okay, sit in that position, you know, try and fold forward. I'll go nowhere. I'd be like the rounded back, Mm. just not able to go forwards at all. And I went, from that to a flat pancake in what I would consider quite a short time just by switching it from trying to do a stretch to loaded pancakes or having like a kettlebell held behind your head um, and just actively trying to pull forwards. And then I, I tried the full thing. It was actually with my, my good friend, Chris Keithley, also a super good parkour coach educator, by the way, um, doing some gymnastics. And in the cool down, I, I just tried it, folded flat, I was like, Chris, 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 look, look. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And just, yeah, just by programming that, it worked so much better than having to just like statically stretch all the time and every day. And I only did it once a week, like that amount of training. And even now from probably not specifically training that for a few months, if you asked me to do it, I'd probably get quite close or back to flat. The results last a much longer time because you've built the strength and the control in those positions. So I think... It's not a magic bullet because I said they don't exist, but it, I found it to be much more effective, which is super good. So as well as the strength and the mobility, probably should do some work for kind of like lactic tolerance and cardiovascular kind of health as well. So, you know, try and do a bit of running. I know parkour people, parkour people are really bad at running. I said it, um, <laughs> <laughs> but try and do a bit. It doesn't take long. It adapts really fast. And, you know, do some long sprints for fun, uh, lactic tolerance. If you throw up, well done. You, sprint, you sprinted hard enough. You know, do some 300 meters fast with a couple of minutes rest in between. You'll see what I'm talking about. So all those things really, really important for athletic development. Try and get them done. Dan, I'd like to unpack further sort of an, of an application of what we've been talking about, like how you design training and how, you, how an athlete makes decisions. So at one point I tried to, and this was pretty early on for me, I, it was insane. I tried to drew a six foot, like two meter uh, drop onto concrete, just mm. a straight step off standing pencil, you know, like drop and cushion. And I, I started on it at, at a lower height. And then I realized that, oh, I need to build up all this squat strength to be able to like box jump 
four feet and I have to, there's just, I realized that, oh, there's all these pieces and it would have become this really large project and I, I effectively abandoned it because I other things to do. And I'm just wondering, I think talking about drops is an interesting way because my idea was that, oh, I know how to solve this. I just need these pieces. And I'm wondering, are there certain and it doesn't have to be just drops, but are there certain, um, we'll call them things hmm. that an athlete can look at that you should like, that's not even something you should train for. Like that's just going to be way more complicated than you're thinking, or it's not, even when you think you've taken it apart, you're still going to be just bashing at it. I'm just wondering if you want to pick that apart further. Sure. So I think recently I got to do kind of two pieces of testing, scientific testing to do with, uh, drops and generation of force that almost makes me think, should we be doing drops at all? Um, so I'd, I'd come to the end of my uh, lifting program, if you like. Uh, it's written by a chap called Will Wayland, powering through on Instagram. Super knowledgeable guy. Uh, his metric of a good coach is crippling self-doubt, always questioning himself, but he's really, really good. And I was delivering a level one course in Essex, where his gym is based. And I went there to do some formal testing for the end of my uh, training program. So on um, one day we just did some max tests for some lift. You know, my deadlift's okay. My bench press is horrific because my arms are really long because I'm a gibbon. Sorry, everybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then on the second day of testing, which is after a rest, a rest day, we measured what's called my dynamic strength index. And we set up what is, uh, what we called a mid thigh pull, which is a, a static barbell, uh, set into a rig that is a, just above the height of my knees mm -hmm. and that you cannot move. Mm. And on the floor is a force plate and you set yourself for like the deadlift position where the bar is just above your knees and you just pull on this bar as hard as you can. And what it essentially does is it measures how strong your deadlift is from that position because you're pulling yourself down into the force plate. Right. So you take this number and you compare it with a bit of maths to the uh, standing counter movement jump, which is like the cute sports science jump where you put your hands on your hips, mm -hmm. um, you bend down, you jump as high as you can. And we did kind of three readings on each, just going for maximum effort. You compare the two and you see kind of how balanced you are. So the mid thigh pull tells you like the maximum force that your body is capable of producing your maximum strength. And the counter movement jump gives you your maximum power and the relationship between the two uh, shows you if you're strong but not powerful, powerful but not strong, or balanced. Uh, turns out that despite all the jumping I'm doing, um, I'm actually strong but not that powerful, which is kind of strange because, you know, I've got a, a, a three-meter-plus broad jump from cold, which is quite good by parkour standards, but I was pulling, I think, three and a half times my body weight plus in that deadlift position, which is actually super decent, um, and that kind of shaped my current training program, but that's an aside. So taking this information uh, later that week, I happened to be going by the chain store in London and there was a piece of research kind of endorsed by Parker UK going on there where we were measuring peak impact forces from drop jumps. Drops. And so obviously I then went oh. into this knowing what the maximum muscular force I can produce in what roughly is the same leg angle uh, you kind of stop at at a drop jump. And so remembering I going back to the three and a half, uh, kilonewtons pulling force or force I can generate pressing into the floor and then doing some drop jumps. And we ended up doing about, yeah, probably two meters, two yeah, meters it's plus like head height or slightly overhead. Yeah, yeah. I've got a video of it somewhere. Maybe it's on my Instagram. I'm not sure. And the peak force that I recorded, I think was 12 and a half kilonewtons. 
So that leaves you with 9,000 newtons <laughs> that is unaccounted for by my muscles. Right. That's a lot of force. <laughs> for you meme lovers, that's a lot of damage. Um, <laughs> um, and so, you know, how do we explain this force away? Because we know that my muscles can only generate uh, three and a half kilonewtons, but I'm taking 12 and a half kilonewtons. So, well, the two engineering physics geeks are going to say, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Some of it goes into your tendons and some of yep. it is the, the design of your system spreads it out so that mm-hmm. you can get more mechanical power out of the system. But it, it also makes me go, I'm never dropping off anything yeah, again. <laughs> the difference is huge. Um, <laughs> oh, that's why it hurts. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we've got Wolf's Law and Davis's Law to thank for tissue adaptations, mm-hmm. which is great. And it just goes to show that, well, hopefully we need to do some science on this. But uh, parkour practitioners, hopefully, should have some great tissue adaptations. Either that or we're all not going to be walking very soon. Um, so what I would really love to see is some, you know, bone density, connective tissue density studies on long-term parkour practitioners, because, um, from that data, which, you know, I actually have the data, I didn't just pluck these numbers out of thin air, you know, we've got these forces that are kind of unaccounted for, which is is really, really fascinating. But obviously, you know, I've been practicing for 15 years and I can still jump and still walk and Mm -hmm. still take impact. So seemingly it's okay for now. But I just thought, I just thought that was absolutely amazing. That the All great scientific discoveries start with the phrase. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. <laughs> so maybe we shouldn't do drops, or maybe we should. And actually, it's going to build you a highly resilient body. Or there's, or there's some piece of technique that you've, you know, like we all know the tech for a drop, and mm. maybe there's a difference to how the whole chain system works. Like uh, my first thought is uh, a dynamic drop is three joints, and the static pull test is two. Mm. So you're still you're using the ankle joint would be powered, but yeah. you don't. You know, you know, I'm just like, oh, here we go. This is an interesting. Mm. But how much do your calves really add? Right, it's much I mean, smaller than your glutes, <laughs> hamstrings, and quads. 9, but it's something. Thousand kilos. Yeah. That's a lot to come out of the little <laughs> gastronemius and soleus. <laughs> Imagine if your calves were bigger than your thighs. That would be be hilarious. (laughs) I think that's Arnold. Dan, so far we've been, you've been just fielding questions of things that I wanted to ask about. And I want to open it up a little bit more and say, let's, let's go from like those specific details. Let's go a little bit more toward coaching in general. And I'm wondering what types of coaching, uh, I don't want to say coaching styles, but there are different ways to coach. What types of coaching resonates with you? And what do you think is a, a good type of coaching for parkour in general i think being able to get to know your learners well and quickly um, both how they operate mentally and their physical capabilities is very very important but never get too close that they won't listen to you when you want to give them a push people in parkour they they need to be exposed to the challenge side of things Mm -hmm. and at some point you have to take a leap, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a double, that's and, a triple. <laughs> and you don't want, you don't want to give them crutches to do that. And what I mean by crutches is, for example, if you're having to be there to spot them and they only do the jump cause you're a spot or you pile up so many mats that, you know, the consequence is, well, there's no consequence if they don't make it. That's not, I'm not saying you should put your students at risk. Um, every challenge you set them, you should know that they're able to do, like I mentioned when I kind of opened off with this answer, but you've got to make sure that you're making your students embrace challenge because it's essentially what the discipline is all about. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of coaching is the one that resonates with me. Um, you've got to be open and amicable enough that people can come to you 
and you know share their kind of worries their concerns and also the things they're pleased about as well if they can say oh you know dan i, I did my first pull-up did my first muscle-up did this climb up did this precision stuck it right you sharing know, the that, joy that, and that's that's really really important i think and you've got to be genuinely invested i think in your students you can't and shouldn't fake it I, i'm not a fan of that of being like oh you know that's really cool and you know not not really meaning <laughs> right. it like I, i'm not a fan of that i think you know, if you're in coaching, you're there because you want to help people progress. I don't understand it. Some I've met some coaches that go, oh, you know, isn't going to be horrible when like your students get better than you. I'm just like, excuse me, <laughs> what are you talking about? No. Like if, you know, you can coach people to surpass you, that's fantastic. You should be really happy for them. Like if you need to take yourself out of the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me, it's that. Are there any things that you're currently struggling with, with coaching, like your own personal practice coaching? I think I reflect on my own coaching quite a lot. Um, so it'd be interesting to have somebody super experienced look at me and say, oh, maybe they should improve at this. Um, what I often do is after I coach educate a course, I just kind of go over the material that I'm teaching these people. I'm like, am I practicing what I preach? And sometimes I'm like, okay, maybe I need to reduce my explanation times a bit or increase the throughput of students on this particular workshop. Uh, and what's great is say on a Friday night when I run like, you know, three classes back to back and, you know, we can have anywhere from like, you know, 60 to almost a hundred people a night. Uh, it's a great opportunity to get a relatively large sample size and make tweaks to how I teach a particular concept or a technique. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, I changed the cues to this and people seem to pick it up faster. And it was a, a quicker explanation time. Um, I changed the setup to this and more people got to go. And I'm, I'm constantly doing that. And uh, at the team training sessions we have for the, the other jump parkour coaches, I often ask them to say, you know, what's working well, what isn't working well, how can we coach this particular technique better? So it sounds arrogant to say I'm not really struggling, but I think it's because I think and reflect a lot. More like you consider that that's the work. That's the work yeah, that so has maybe, to be done. Maybe, that, maybe the work is that in that I'm constantly trying to improve hmm. i want our sessions to be the best sessions in the world and if i'm not constantly working to do that then they're not going to be are there any particular resources that you go to so like we you mentioned one weightlifting book but i'm wondering if there's anything that you find evergreen um and both in terms of um kinesiology or you know like there's a bunch of different topics i don't want to precede your ideas <laughs> uh, okay um in terms of resources i'm a big fan of kind of doing it interpersonally so speaking to people that mm-hmm. i know know the topic in and out and then maybe getting the reading material afterwards. Yeah. They might um, say details in chapter four, go look it up. Right. Yeah. That's it. So, um, I think I used to speak to, with regards to weightlifting, like Christian, um, who Christian McPhee, he was British champion in the 77 kilo category, uh, weightlifting used to come from the parkour community. Good friend of mine. I'd often run, uh, things by him. And now I speak to Will who writes my program and, I'm always really keen to speak to people who I think are like right at the top of their field mm-hmm. and pick their brains and run my hypotheses by them. Um, so out of my like recent uh, talkings with Will, I'm reading the uh, triphasic training book by Cal Dietz, which is quite an interesting kind of take. And it mod- it's a modified version of the old kind of Bulgarian weightlifting program that was effective, but... Um, turned out that you had to be on steroids to follow it properly <laughs> <laughs> when the i think american athletes tried it, it and it just work. burned out all their athletes like, what's um, up with this yeah so like mm, okay <laughs> my, my athletes just unable to, to train anymore oh they're not on gear that's why 
Um, so I think in terms of strength, that's my, my current resource. Um, in, in terms of parkour, I could probably watch the, the documentary, The Monkey is Back with Stefan Vigru. Mm-hmm. Um, I've watched that Endlessly, over a hundred times. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good resource. If you ever, I think if you ever want to watch something that encapsulates the spirit of the discipline, that's the best resource in, in my opinion. It's, it's yeah. so good. Stefan doesn't really waste words and it's, it's just fantastic. Uh, some of the training actual practices are maybe a bit outdated, but the general message I think is, is very, very important. So I think that, that one's always golden for me. I watched it again recently after like a few years off. Mm. Still great. Dan, I mentioned in the beginning that you were on the board for Parkour UK, and I'd like, if you would, to take the opportunity to ask you to unpack sort of from the NGB down point of view, like what, what is Parkour UK's, um, what's the mission for it, um, and what's the purpose, and what is it actually doing? Yeah, so I guess um, on paper, you know, it's the NGB, it's the national governing body for parkour in the UK. I mean, it sounds fairly self-explanatory, and I guess it kind of is. So it's the interface if you like between the community primarily the coaching community at the moment and kind of the government or other larger authorities maybe local authorities to be like the kind of mouthpiece for what we do and what the collective mission is of parkour practitioners in the uk and then when you were on the parkour board can you give me the the time frame and and what you felt the organization was really primarily focused on and what its challenges were at that time. And then if that's changed and you see it doing, you know, like it has new challenges it's facing now, I'm curious, like how it's changing over time. Sure. So I think when I, when I first got on the board, the first uh, year or so I was there, it kind of felt like super effective. We achieved recognition as a sport for parkour in the UK, which I think is going to serve as our suit of armor in the whole kind of fig escapade Mm -hmm. um as we have sovereignty in the uk which is which is really good so that achievement was was huge and fantastic and a great thing to be a part of i guess my mission if you like of why i wanted to be elected is that being passionate about coaching and coach education i thought that primarily the level two and its guys um that it was when i first got on the board i thought it was okay but it needed some changes in i think primarily assessment methods um things we were looking at and we're like okay there's some great physical tests but does it really kind of assess how good you are as a coach and i really wanted to kind of rework that so we formed a a workforce subcommittee we made some changes to the level two assessments um no system is perfect i don't think it's quite there yet i think it was a step in the right direction um, you know, it used to have like run five kilometers on it. Well, I think, you know, you probably should be able to run five kilometers. Okay. If you're a competent parkour practitioner, it has absolutely no bearing on how good a coach you are. So testing somebody on that doesn't really seem super fair. And we had the 400 meters of QM as well. If you're a real QM head, you know, maybe that sounds like Christmas. Uh, not all of us are. So, I mean, most people, most people, it doesn't, I didn't mind the run part. Um, Side note, I, I passed passed it when it had all that stuff on it. Um, but just <laughs> <laughs> picking myself up. <laughs> um, but I think again, it doesn't have a bearing on how good a coach you are. So we kind of cut down the physical bits um, and made them a bit more parkour specific. I would say kept the stuff that we thought was a real meat and bones of it, and added um, like a questioning element 
which I think when it first came about, people underestimated a little bit. So we're just like, okay, how do you do like a, a cat 180 or something like that and give us some points and we'll, we, we ask more specific questions than that. But people are like, oh yeah, I got the question. This is going to be fine rather than having to do like a savagely difficult oh, challenge. Right. And then we're like, oh no, <laughs> these yeah. questions are pretty in depth. You better know your stuff. Um, it's definitely not like a free pass. But equally, we're not looking to try and fail you. It's not a trap. Yeah, it's not a trap. You know, there's no Admiral Akbar involved. But um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well played, sir. Um, but <laughs> but it, it's it's a test of you know, do you know your stuff and can you explain it clearly and concisely? Uh, because you're going to have to do that as a coach. So we just tried to make it a bit more fitting uh, for what it is. So I think that was that was my mission, kind of fix the level mm-hmm. two. And uh, there were a couple of other board members that had very similar views on it, and that's why they went for it. So we worked quite cohesively towards that target, which mm-hmm. was really nice. And the board uh, these days, I know you're no longer on the board, but mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, what do you see now from the outside? Does it have a uh, has how, obviously your perspective has changed? But how do you see the organization now? Like, what do you think it's working on, and what do you think maybe it should be working on if it's not working on? What do you agree with? Yeah, so I think, um, so after that year that I mentioned where we made these changes, um, Fig reared its ugly head. And obviously that took a lot of kind of time and resources. Mm-hmm. Um, Parkour UK was involved in the inception of Parkour Earth, right. which is, you know, the community stab at an international federation, something mm-hmm. that we, well, absolutely need. And I was going to say desperately need. Desperately, right? yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, um, and even, yeah, it's something we needed and even in FIG's early communication with Parker UK, when we issued an open letter to them, we're like, when it, which it was really good, it hit the nail on the head and they knew it because their response was, uh, yeah, but well, we, uh, we don't talk to national federations only international ones. So come back with one of those. So, you know, <laughs> I, I don't think it was a knee jerk action. Um, it's still, you know, bound by rules of good governance and there was time spent creating it with the right communities, but obviously, you know, it's needed as a necessary tool. Uh, so that's kind of an ongoing thing as we're recording this. I think it was announced today, the day of recording, but won't be the day of whenever this airs. We've had Tracy Crouch, who's a member of parliament appointed as a senior independent director. Uh, somebody with that level of political clout in the UK, I think will really help both like kind of external battles to be fought and having some kind of power, like our relationship with UK sport and sport England. I think it will be very beneficial there. Maybe unlock funding avenues that maybe weren't open before uh, and also maybe help bring in more interest from the the wider uh, community in the UK. I mean, currently it's primarily the kind of coaching organizations that, um, that are engaged. With yeah, Parker that are more engaged and it'd be nice to see just more general practitioners engaged. I think Parker UK is strangely quite divisive. Uh, to the UK community at large, um, not in its actions, just it's viewed in one of two ways generally. And I think for some, sometimes people are quite lacking in trust for the organization. They think mm-hmm. that there's always motives or people are out to make an absolute like fortune in money. Yeah, something. power grab and money. I've already stated what my motives were for joining. Uh, most of the people from the community have, you know, their motive is like that. You don't get paid loads of money to be on the board of Parker UK. You know, it's a non-exec position. Nobody's Nobody's raking it in. People are donating their own time for essentially for free to help try and grow the thing. Um, and people, people seem to like to complain about it. And I think if you, if you've got a complaint, you can fix it. You are the parkour community, become a member. It's a democracy, right? Engage. <laughs> yeah. So, um, even back in the day, 
I wasn't very happy that Parker UK's entirety, entire collective, if you like, of elected directors that were, you know, meant to represent the entire UK community. They all came from one organization. Mm -hmm. That's not a national governing body at all. (laughs) And I was quite vocal and vociferous about changing that. Not because I had anything against the people, but because the right thing to do is to have a governing body. Representation. Exactly, representation. (laughs) So I was very vocal. I probably, you know, probably didn't make any friends at the time. But I, you know, I really wanted to see that change. And I think... It's, it's really important. And so if you want to change something about Parker UK, you can. And I try and mention it on every course I go to. But again, the people going on the courses are the ones that are engaged. Right. I'd love to see the people that are you know, not feeling so engaged just to engage in yeah, the just discussion. Yeah, right? just have a go. Um, yeah. If you want to change something, you can. Um, and you know, if the community feels the same way, they will support your actions. And, and there's, there's scope for that. People will listen. I know Parker UK isn't the greatest at external communication, but they will always try and fight your corner where they can you know they're generally good people there and they listen so i think yeah just just get involved especially in a time with the whole fig thing going on the more everyone comes together even if it's just to make changes the better dan is there anything else that you want to talk about yeah i think i'd like to just say a few words about kind of design for areas um for parkour and like parkour parks kind of specifically I think it's one of those things where people look at it and go, oh, maybe it's, maybe it's not that difficult. And I think you have to have more consideration than that. I think if you're designing your obstacles with one movement in mind, then it's probably not really going to work. So in the UK, if you're designing a park or park one, you're probably going to be quite limited on space. And two, you have to design to the British now European standard, um, which both is an enabler, but also has some pretty strict limitations and like, you know, critical fall zones, heights, height differences, where you can have impact absorbing surface, that kind of thing. And, you know, and I've spoken to people who have kind of designed things before, not really been parkour practitioners and they'll look at stuff and they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, you can do a lache here and the bar's like so close together that it's <laughs> right like, you know th- you know there's like a critical limit for a right. lache where they're too close and you can't use proper technique and you know things like this and i'm like um you can't you can't work like this what i often like to do i guess my number one thing would be if it's going in a particular place that has a community already speak to the community if you can't do that look at the local spots see what they have to offer uh so the first park i ever designed was in loughborough which is to the north of Leicester. And I spoke to the local community when I I came up with the design and this was like, this was not a foregone conclusion that we were going to win this contract. You know, it had to be pitched against other designs. Other uses for the space and other designs. Yeah. Other, other designs for parkour parks, you know, so it wasn't, you know, you've got a parkour park, you're going to design it. And obviously it was the first one I did. So I was like, I want, you know, I want it to be good. And I spoke to the the local community and I was like, what do you want? What don't you have that you wish you had? And they were like, lashes. We've got nothing to swing on. And I was like, <laughs> break Asian, break Asian. Brilliant. Okay. So that gives me like a, an overall theme for the area. And then I'm looking at it like, okay, I'd like to have one kind of crux or interesting obstacle that's in there. And I think it was the first time we had like the vertical wall with like a like a we call them like a floating platform like slotted onto oh, the side yeah, thank you. that's like the first time we had that in the uk i was like let's put one of those in and have loads of cool swings to it um and every every obstacle you put in you want to try and make it as versatile as possible you don't want to be like okay i just want people to do vaults on this wall like it's mm-hmm. it's 
the more bang for buck you can get out of every piece of kit, the better. And also where you don't put obstacles is just as important. Um, and I think the better your parkour vision is, the better your designs are going to be. You can spot routes and challenges. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think the mark of a good space is do people still use it and how long are they using it for? The Loughborough Park people are still going and they're still finding new challenges. And to me, that's, that's, a, that's a great feeling that makes... Uh, it's very validating. So just trying to make it as versatile as possible. Occasionally, maybe it's nice to put in a thing to learn a specific technique that people might not have access to. So going back to that Lachey's point, the Leicester Park has a, a rail at just the right height for, um, I call them crab swings or straddle undershoots, um, where you essentially go from the top of the rail with your hands on and your feet outside of your hands, legs straight, and you swing out oh, under the rail and then right. fly through the air. Um they were in vogue very much at the time, I think, when I designed it. And I was like, well, let's have a place that's just the right height for people to learn it, where they can swing under and not hit the floor, but no higher that it doesn't you know, scare the hell out of them. So occasionally you know, put stuff like that in there, but try and make it versatile and try and have an overall objective, I think, for who you're designing it for. Are there any particular resources that either you go to regularly or that you would suggest people you know, tap into? Oh, that is a good question. I think, yes. But it's more a case of your own parkour experience, sadly, than a, a book. References from spots or challenges that I think you found inspirational are really, really useful. So collect them in pictures. Yeah, or collect them in your head. And obviously, there's some great examples of design in Denmark as well. Those guys produce parks very, very often. And there's some, some great stuff there as well. So I think if you're yeah, looking for design, look at some of the Danish parks. Um, some of the American kind of gyms as well, they've got some quite interesting features. I think features can make or break a design as well. So rather than just having kind of areas of you know flat, empty walls, what can you add here that provides more than it takes away? Or ideally, it takes away nothing and adds more options. Those kind of things are really, really important. Um, you want people to be training in the space and you want it to be able to cater for people from right from the very beginning to like a super high level. That's really important. I say all the time that I love to collect stories because I think the type of story that people pick and how they tell them, that tells you more about them than about the story itself. So are there, is there a story that you want to share? Uh, I'd like to tell two if that's possible. I don't know. Is it possible? <laughs> yes, you certainly may. <laughs> well, I can do it. <laughs> Go for it. Whether your people are up for listening to it. I can only record 21 more hours before we have to pause to change data cards. I'm really sorry, everybody. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so there are two instances where I'd like to think I've used inverted commas, real life kind of parkour or that put my training to the actual test rather than, you know, going out and essentially practicing. So the first one, this is in Leicester, my, my home city. And I've just finished, uh, some winter training at the track. So lots of lactic threshold training, lots of sprints. I mentioned throwing up all that kind of stuff. I was pretty shot and I was cycling back to my flat. And as I get to the garage bit, you know, I just get off my bike and I look across to the end of the road and this, uh, my road kind of backs onto a big path that runs from the edge of Leicester, essentially right to the middle. And it is very, very nice. It's like lined with trees. It's lovely. And I can just see part of it from the end of my road. And I, um, you know, I hear a scream, uh, come from there and I'm like, okay, that's, it's a bit early for people to be drinking. You know, it's maybe 7 PM or something. And so I look across and I see a guy absolutely just legging it up Newark. And I'm like, 
what's he running from? And then, you know, maybe two seconds later, um, a girl runs forward and she's the one that screamed and she's like, stop him. He's, he's stolen my phone. And that was it. I had no more hesitation. I threw my back on the ground, <laughs> threw my bike on the ground, you know, completely lost regard for my own personal possessions. And despite the, the shot legs, just tore after this guy. So it was about 30, 40 meters from my garage to the, uh, to Newark. So I get onto there and turn the corner and he's, he's, a, he's a fair deal ahead, less than a hundred meters, but pretty far. And I'm just like storming this uphill just after this guy. And he looks back and he's just, you know, looks forward, carries on. He's like, this guy's not catching me. Um, he looks back like five seconds later, I've cut his lead like less than in half, you know, train sprinter versus, you know, somebody from the general public and his face. I've never seen someone look more worried. You know, this guy just storming down on you like steely gaze. And, and he turns back and I just shouted something painfully arrogant, like you're never going to outrun me uh, just, you know, just to try and get in his head. And so he's running a couple more seconds past and I'm, you know, I'm getting closer and closer. Uh, he tries to throw the phone down on the floor that he's stolen from this girl as he just to think I'll, you know, pick it up and stop. He was wrong. So I <laughs> pick the phone up, carry on after him. He runs across this road into the, a big park that's in Leicester. It's a very a nice park. And I can see he's gone past the lactic threshold. He's starting to get gassed. You know, <laughs> when people's sprint speed just plummets. And then he was like starting to slow down. I was like, right, that's it. I got you now. And it was, it was only at this point I thought, what if you robbed her at knife point? <laughs> and I'm like... And then in my head, I'm like, yeah. he's really gassed and I'm not. He, if he, even if he's got one, I think I can probably subdue him um, before I die at least. <laughs> so <laughs> I run across and um, I basically just grab this guy and I'm just, you know, just being super loud in his face. Like, well, what do you think you're doing? Why are you mugging people? Um, and it was still daylight. So like, why are you mugging people in broad daylight? What do you think you're playing at? And I drag him back to this girl, like all the way across the road down Newark. I'm just like, <laughs> hold him like by the scruff of the neck and like, push him forward and I'm like apologize to this woman now like what do you think you're playing at and he's just you know he's obviously super embarrassed because I'm being really loud there's people about <laughs> and I'm just like right um so he apologized to this girl give her the phone back amazingly didn't crack when uh, survived yeah survived which was cool and you know took his photo and he's trying to put his hood over his face mm-hmm. I'm like get your <laughs> down you know what are you playing at take his photo report him to the police job done go in my bag and bike is still there no one's robbed those in the meantime and i was like this is great i've you know actually just all that training that i've put in i actually got to use it and i I felt like super happy that i actually got to help somebody with my training which is kind of what we're training for so that was really really nice and going on to the second one i guess it's kind of a similar thing we we had a discussion earlier about uh chris mcdougall's book born to run mm-hmm. and barefoot running and kind of how it influenced us. So when I actually first read that, I, I went to the Copper Canyons in Mexico to try and see the, the Tarahumara uh, firsthand because I actually found the book like super inspirational. So I ended up going there and as part of my kind of travels and adventures around the Copper Canyons, went to see um, a waterfall there and just in the general scenery of this part of the world in Mexico, um, there are lots of, kind of they're almost like giant boulders you know like 20 30 40 feet high and there's a lot of local children that just climb them it's their playground essentially and their level of physical coordination is kind of frightening it's really good they're climbing these super high boulders that you know one fall is they're gonna die then they have no fear they're super confident in their abilities it's quite awesome to watch 
and uh, I went to a waterfall and it was semi-dry season. So there's water going over the edge of this waterfall, but there are rocks sticking out of it. Um, so it's really cool to be able to like, you know, kind of jump and stride my way uh, to the rock stand on the edge of this waterfall. Like, you know, the edges, the drop is massive. Like it's a, it's a, it's an insta game over if you fall off of there, but it was a breathtaking view. It's one of the most stunning places I've seen ever. And so I, I go back and I stand at this very makeshift kind of fence where visitors are kind of supposed to go. And there's some Mexicans there, there's some Tarahumara there. And I see it in the time that it's taken me to get back. Um, a very small child, maybe four, five, six kind of years of uh, years old has made his way to the edge of this waterfall and is sitting like legs dangling over the edge of the waterfall, just balancing precariously on the edge and is just picking up stones out of the water and just, just throwing them off of the edge. And, Every time, every time he throws a stone, he's like, like leaning forward, like over the edge of this waterfall. And I've, now I don't have children, but I imagine it's like a, a super kind of parental instinct response of like, this child is in immediate danger, like one dodgy throw and he's going over the edge. And so I just turned and was just running, striding, plyoing, like not really thinking about it, um, over these rocks, this, what felt really <laughs> mad to me a running jump over like the river like striding to this child and I was like uh, come here aquí aquí in Spanish like um, turns out I didn't speak Spanish he spoke Taramara but he got the idea <laughs> so I got to him like you know as I got closer I slowed down so I didn't startle him you know took him by the hand and led him back to his family and <laughs> brought him back and all the Mexicans were like you know clapping like oh thank you so much like really really grateful the parents were just like eh. He's fine, isn't he? (laughs) It's just really interesting to me. But just having, again, another opportunity to put all that training to the test and and try and help somebody, I thought was was super fun. And of course, the final question, three words to describe your practice. Get fucking strong. Love it, Dan. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. This was episode 61. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 61. There's more to the Movers Mindset Project than just this podcast. Visit our website for more free content, to join our email list, or to read about how you can support this project. And I'll leave you with a final thought from Ambrose Redmoon. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than fear. Thanks for listening.